I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. We prayed this as a prayer. A prayer for God to rend the heavens and to visit His people and to pour out on us a blessing. To do His work in our midst. To plow deeply in our hearts. To show us our sin. Oh, that Thou wouldst rend the heavens. That Thou wouldst come down. That the mountains might flow down at Thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. And thou didst terrible things which we look not for. Thou camest down, the mountains flow down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Reminds us of Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 2, that I have not seen nor ear heard, neither entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Most of the time, people use that in reference to heaven, but in the context, it means here, the blessings, the spiritual blessings, the biblical truth, the, the things that would transform us and mold us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth. What a wonderful thing, that God meets those that rejoice and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, we have sinned, and those is continuance, and we shall be saved. We are all as an unclean thing. Please mark verse 6. This verse ought to be shared with all those that you give the gospel to, and you ought to remind yourself of this often, that Apart from Christ, we have no righteousness. The righteousness that we enjoy and, 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 and glory in is an imputed righteousness that has been given to us by judicial act of God the Father to the believing sinner because Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. But apart from that, we are as an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses piled them all together, all that we could could point to in a, as a group piled up are as filthy rags. That's the best that man in his own efforts can come up with. Filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name. What an indictment. None call upon the name of the Lord that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. We see in verse 7, I hope you see the pattern there. For those of us who would seek the Lord, that we should call on Him, we should stir ourselves up to, uh, to take hold of Him. Didn't Jacob of old do that? I will not let thee go till thou bless me. Taking hold of the Lord in, in prevailing, interceding prayer, not just for others, but for ourselves. For thou hast hid thy face from us. This is the predicament. It has consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father. He begins to lay out the, before the Lord the very basis of His praying. And that which He is holding on to, that if we're holding on to certain things, there are truths that God told us to hold on to. When we plead in prayer, we're just doing what God has taught us to do. Thou art our Father. We are the clay. Isaiah uses that picture throughout his, in several places in his writings. The clay doesn't say to the potter, what are you making? 
We're the clay. We are all the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore. You have right to be. You have every entitlement to be intensely angry at us, to remove us from the face of the earth, and to cast us into hell eternally. But be not wroth very sore. O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Now God, who knows all things and can forget nothing, must be asked to do that. He must decide not to remember, since it is in His omniscient attributes to to be all-knowing. And He's asking Him to do something that would seem incongruous were it not that God has told us, I will forget your sins if you repent of them. Oh, remember not iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee. We are all thy people. That's the basis of our pleading. Children coming to a father. God's people coming before him. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Of course, in this dispensation, this age of grace, the church is a picture of Zion, the kingdom of the Lord, the work of the Lord on earth now. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire. And all of our pleasant things are laid waste. The precious, sacred things of God are laid waste. Surely this is a description of the church today. The ancient things that Legrand referred to, the pattern that God has given to us is laid aside. and We're seeking for some new thing. And patterning ourselves after the world, both in our own lives and families and in the Lord's work. Our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things? O Lord, wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? The inimitable Puritan commentator Matthew Henry writes, in this chapter, Paul, Israel prays that God would manifest himself in a remarkable and surprising way. They plead that what God had done in the past that he would still do for his people. Isn't that what revival is? They confess themselves to be sinful and unworthy of God's favor and that they deserve the judgments they were now under. They plead the mercy of God as a father and submit themselves to his sovereignty in verse 8. They decry the deplorable condition they are in and earnestly pray for the pardon of sin and for the turning away of God's anger. And then he notes at the end of his, these are his introductory notes to this chapter in his mammoth commentary. This was not only intended for the use of the captive Jews, but may serve for our direction to the church in other times of distress, what to ask of God and how to plead with Him. Are God's people at any time in affliction, in great affliction? Let them pray like this. God has given us a pattern. The great need on every hand is for spiritual renewal, for revival, for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the work of the church. That's what these prayer meetings are for. For a real visitation of God in our midst. For God's people to confess and forsake sin. For God to show himself strong. Many years ago, R.A. Torrey said this, I have a theory and I believe it to be true that there is not a church, a chapel, 
or mission on earth where you cannot have a revival. Provided there is a little nucleus of faithful people who will hold on to God until it comes. This is a very real sense in in which revival is always the sovereign act of God. There are those who have thought that you could construct it, could uh, demand it, could work it up, could uh, program it, could schedule it, and uh, they are sadly and sorely mistaken. Does God send revival? Yes. Is He the source of revival? Yes. And He alone can give it. Scripture and experience prove that God can give it. We see it throughout the Scriptures. In fact, this prayer here for revival shows us that God's people are to ask for it. God has given us and preserved these prayers for us for today. At the same time, we see God in the Scriptures responding to human conditions. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. There's that humbling, praying, seeking, and turning. That's our part. That's not works. That is the evidence of spiritual life. That is righteousness in action. Seeking, humbling, praying. And I would remind us that this only comes from the Word of God being read and taught and preached and and sought. We seek the Lord in His Word. Turn from their wicked ways, then, then, then I will hear. This is a promise of God. I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, this can happen to a nation or a church or a family or an individual. What, we, what do the words here in this chapter, Isaiah 64, tell us about real revival? First of all, I believe we see here the meaning of revival explained to us. I've already alluded that you hear all kinds of things uh, pointed to as revival. And not to split hairs, and in no way to, to put anybody in the bad light, that is not my, my position at all, but our, our late pastor would often teach us that you know, we often hear the unbiblical word of rededication when we need to have repentance. And we hear of the, the unbiblical phrase, a revival referring to a meeting when what we need to have is a period of time of seeking the Lord's face and begging Him to work. And if He pleases, revival will come. But how can you call something a revival that has not taken place? That it's just a meeting on a calendar or a period of days that we've set aside. And I'm, I'm in no wise saying that that should not be done. But I think we should be accurate in what we call things and use biblical terms to, to refer to these things. What do we mean by revival? We know that What is meant by revival in business? Businesses are interested in revival. Have you ever watched, listen to the stock market or the business report? They give you how many points up the stock market. I know nothing about it, but I always rejoice when I hear that it's up because I feel that that might bless the rest of us at some future point. But I know that it goes up and down like a, you know, some kind of ride at the fair, but Business seeks revival, where the stock prices go up and the industry is successful. We know what is meant by reviving a person who has fainted. We read by the man at the Opposites building downtown. I read in the paper was working in a trench. It was so hot down there that they had to go down and get him and bring him up. And he had fainted, so he needed reviving. 
There must be life for revival to take place. We're not talking about resurrection. Some people point to the salvation of souls as revival. That's a byproduct of God's people being right with the Lord, seeking the face of God, going after souls. But revival is for the people of God. There must be life for it to be revived. Resuscitation. Not resurrection. We're alive in Christ. Where there is spiritual life where there can be no revival. We see, sadly in our day, a revival of sin in an unprecedented way. I was listening to a message by Dr. Peter Masters recently, and he, he said that, that the days are the darkest of days, and I began to take exception with him in my thinking. And he, he was, his point was not that necessarily men were more sinful today than they were a thousand years ago, but the accessibility of sin and the ways of devising new sin and it being instantaneously available is far, far greater than any other time in the history of man. A revival of sin and an openness and a defiance in sinful behavior. This is me. This is what I want. This is who I am. God could not mean what He means in His Word. It must be wrong. This is what we'll still seek God and call it religion and we can still live the way we want to regardless of what the Word of God says and sin high-handedly and presumptuously and that's the day that we see ourselves in today. It's just one example of revival. A revival of sinful, immoral behavior. But what do we mean by a spiritual, biblical revival? We use that word in the church almost to the degree that we use the word blessing. And sometimes we need to stop and pause and and dig deep and say, what is that? What are we praying for? What are we asking God to do at Glen Iris Baptist Church? And in my life, and in your life, in my family, in your family. What What do we mean by a spiritual, biblical revival in the church? text tells us that it is the Lord God rending the heavens, tearing open the heavens. You see the the heavens rent. That's a very graphic picture. The the clouds being rolled back as a scroll, as some of our songs sing. uh, And it points to the appearance of the Lord. We often refer to the rending of the heavens as the coming of Christ again. Whenever God comes to visit His people in a spiritual way, if not a literal, visible way, with the clouds being opened, but, but an opening from heaven where the blessing of God can come down to us. You see, the Holy Spirit is using graphic, vivid pictures to paint for us what God means in His Word. If He didn't do that, we couldn't understand spiritual truth. So the rending of the heavens is a picture of God opening up and sending down the blessings and the resources and the, 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 the hand of God Uh, prospering His work and turning our hearts toward Him that only He can do. I was traveling recently and uh, and off in the distance was a day like today and the lightning was coming so strong from the heavens down to the earth. It looked like it was hitting the earth somewhere. I could not help but think of this verse that the, the heavens opening and God sending down His power, sending down His Spirit, dividing asunder so that he could work. This is the Lord rending the heavens. As verse 1 says, that thou would come down. This is a picture of the Lord dwelling 
among his people. Not unlike in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory presence of the Lord would hover over the holy place. They knew he was there. They knew he was there. And remember when the the Spirit of God left, ascended from the temple, they, they cried, Ichabod. The presence of the Lord had left. The particular thing that the Jewish people reveled in, that unlike any other people on earth, they had the Lord himself in their presence. He was not the Ark of the Covenant. It was not the relics. It was not the, the tables of stone as important as they were in the Ark of the Covenant or the manna or Aaron's rod that budded that they pointed to. God's people in the Old Testament days could point to the very presence of God in their midst. They were God's particular people, His elect, His chosen out ones. See, they could say, our God is in our midst. They could point to the, cl- the cloudy pillar and the fiery pillar and say, our God is in our midst. Isaiah had experienced personal revival. If you look back in chapter 6, he, in the, he, he just gives us a testimony in a very graphic way. In the year that King Uzziah died, he dates it. My grand and I were visiting with a dear lady last night and she began to spontaneously give us her testimony. She said, uh, I was a little girl. She was an elderly. I went to the bathroom. I was so burdened by my sin. I went to the bathroom and cried out to the Lord in forgiveness. And I, I knew he heard me, and I felt that he heard my prayer. And I went and woke up my older sister. And she said, we've got to go wake up Mother and Daddy. And they woke up the whole neighborhood to tell them that she had come to know the Lord. She could tell you the time. take you to the place where the Lord saved me by his wonderful grace. In the year that King Uzziah died, these are Ebenezer's we can raise up and point to. Jean and her testimony could point back to the hour, the day when she believed. Can you? Now you may not know a date, but you know that time when you pass from death to life. He is mine and I am His. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. That's when it came for Isaiah's life. I saw Him sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And, and we need not, and I don't dare paint a picture that you must see visions and dream dreams. But when you come to know the Lord, you see Him as He is in His holiness in yourself as you are in your sinfulness. And when you experience revival as a believer, there are seasons when the Word of God becomes so strong, you feel like you will die, it will crush you. And the presence of the Lord is so real, and your sin is so great, and you, you cry out to Him, Lord, that's right, you're, I agree with you, that's what that is, and I, I ask you to deal with me and cleanse me as only you can. Above it stood the seraphim, and each one had six wings, and with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And they cried one unto another, Any vision of the Lord that does not have him holy and set apart is no biblical vision of God. All he could cry out was, 
holy, holy, holy. Set apart, set apart, set apart. The Lord God of hosts. And what was his response? Woe is me. Undone is me. There's no elevation. There's no bragging on self. There's no pointing to gifts. There's no saying, look at me, how wonderful I am. And listen to me. Let me tell you how great I am and, and write a book about it. No, he was just saying, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a mess. Because I am a man of unclean lips. Well, isn't it amazing that he starts with his lips? We sin so carelessly with our lips, with our words. Trash people. Criticize people. So glib with our, our words. And he starts with his lips. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the Lord had to deal with his specific sin, didn't he? And he put a, figuratively speaking, a coal from off the altar of heaven to Isaiah's lips so that he could preach his message to God's people. And he said, go and tell this people in verse 9. You see, when revival comes, there will be an obedience to the, the commands and the commission of God. You won't have to beg and plead with people to do evangelistic work and be concerned about the lost. Go out in the highways and hedges to compel them to come in. When Isaiah was revived, one of the evidences of it, his, his speech was changed. And he was commissioned to go and tell. Go and tell this people. Now, Isaiah had no fruit, no measurable fruit for his commission. You're going to go and tell, you obey. They will not listen largely. But still, you go and tell. You see, Isaiah can be revived. He can come to know the Lord and be revived, whether anybody else does or not. Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see indeed and perceive not. Asa cried out to the Lord. We've already studied his prayer. Lord, it is nothing with thee to help. When we come to the Lord, it's as with this assurance that he has everything that is needed, all power, all resources. He sees it from every angle. He sees the end from the beginning. And even if I'm praying amiss, I can say, Lord, correct my prayer and make it be what it ought to be. It is nothing with me, Lord. When we pray for the Lord to save a hardened heart, someone so far away from the Lord who cares nothing about the things of God, it's nothing with God to break that heart open. He alone can do it. We're asking him to do what he alone can do. You have the key. You have the power. All power is given to you in heaven and earth. Help us, O Lord, O God. Help us. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go, Asa prayed. When revival takes place, there's always a sensitivity to sin. Pastor, how will we know when revival visits us, or when revival visits me? You'll be very bothered about your sin. You will not be able to abide your sin. You will not make excuse for your sin. You will loathe your sin in yourself as a sinner. I know that flies contrary to all the psychobabble you hear, even from so-called evangelistic pulpits, but you will loathe your sin. 
there will be a sensitivity to sin, a desire to be cleansed. Do we not see that in Isaiah's? I'm an un, a man of unclean lips. I need to be cleansed. We see it here in this corporate prayer in Isaiah 64. A desire to be made right with God and our fellow man. Not just some people want the exclusivity of being right with God and, and they do not care about these relationships here, but may I submit to you, you're not right with God if you don't care about these relationships this way. This relationship and this relationship must both be right for you to be right with the Lord and for me to be right with the Lord. When the revival takes place, there's also an aware, always an awareness of God's glory. Our day and the pulpits of our day have so reduced God down to a manageable theorem, to a packaged deal. That God's glory and His power seem inconsequential or ordinary. But a fiery pillar and a cloud by day and by night is not an ordinary thing, is it? A coal off the altar of heaven burning wrong speech out of your system is not an ordinary thing. It's not something you can order from Nashville or Christian book distributors or Amazon. It's a sovereign work of God. There is a priority placed on God's Word. People bored with the Word of God are unrevived or either an unregenerate people. When we substitute God's word with anything at all, we're an unrevived church. When the pulpit and the plan of God is considered inconsequential, there's a people, there's evidence of an unrevived, desperate people in desperate need of a visitation from the Lord. How could we ever? Be bored with God's Word. Or the preaching of God's Word. The instruction of God's Word. Everything that God ever wanted us to know is recorded in these pages. All the treasures of the ages are recorded here for us. And we will stand and give an account the books will be opened one day. We'll be judged out of these things that are written in this book. We often see and hear of miraculous answers to prayer when revival comes. Things that only God can do. Revival brings a sensitivity to what is wrong in our lives and a desire to make them right. We desire to be right with God, as I've mentioned, and right with others, and, and God's glory and His power are revealed And he alone is glorified. Not a person, not a preacher, not a church, but God is glorified. And and where revival, real revival is, no one else wants the glory. They don't want to to do anything. Isaiah was just so enthralled at God's presence that that's all he wanted. The Holy Spirit is ungrieved and, and can do his work in our hearts and in our midst. He is not quenched and his work is unhindered. Pride and rebellion always grieve the Holy Spirit and quench Him in our hearts and in our church. 
So that's revival explained. And I, I know it, I, I feel very uh, unable to, to describe it as it should be, but I, I think you get just an idea of what revival is. I would challenge you, you study it and you find out from God's word and you'll see what revival is. But that's revival explained. But I want us to see the need for revival declared. Why is revival needed? Why do we need it in all the work that we're engaged in? What are the evidences that revival are needed? That that may be the better way of putting it as we are doing investigative research in our church here in our own private lives. Again, to find the answer, we must look in two places. In the Word of God and in the church of God. These are the two areas that God is at work. When we look at the, the Word of God back in 700 B.C. in Isaiah's day, we see the need existed was very similar to the, to the need that we see in our, our land today. In verse 1, the mountains of great obstacles were hindering God's blessings. And it's no mistake that our Lord talks about mountains being moved. Mountains are a symbol of God's power and might. They're often referred to in the creative acts in the Psalms. We refer to the, the mountains and they're so massive and they represent, in a, in a sense, God's power and His might to us. But mountains also represent the obstacles that stand between us and God. I like watching mount, mountain climbing people trying to, climbing those, those uh, you know, it seems like the, the mountain is leaning in their direction. They go up and over and, and just using their little tools and you just wonder how can someone do that and scale the most unbelievable areas. There was a great deal of open sin, we see in verses 5 and 6. Verse 7 tells us there was prayerlessness. Now, we could stop there and spend a great deal of time, I'm just mentioning it, but a prayerless church, a prayerless Christian is in need of God's reviving because to be rightly related to the Lord's prayer is a spontaneous thing. It is, it is like air, it's like breathing, it is... The, the, the way, the normal business of a revived people. Verse 9 tells us that God's judgment was resting upon His people. Isn't that not a fearful thing? In fact, that kind of reference is made fun of today, even among those who profess God's people. And they refer to this kind of preacher preaching, and preachers like me is this judgment and, and it's put in a, in a bad light. It is what it is. Verse 9 tells us, Be not wroth, very sore, O Lord, remember neither the iniquity forever. Behold, we see, we beseech thee, we're begging you, we are all thy people. God's judgment was resting upon his people. We see in verses 10 and 11, that it tells us that the work of God was in a state of desolation, just in disarray. The, the city had been ransacked and the very... Precious things of God were, were laid waste. And so we see the need of revival. We have revival explained and the need of revival, but we also see the need when we look into our, our churches. It's a similar to the conditions among God's people in Isaiah's day. There, there are many who profess to know the Lord, but who do not in fact know Him. And this is the pastor's great burden. And that's why the, the apostle instructs us to do the work of an evangelist. 
evangelize those who profess to know me but who do not. Having a form of godliness, he wrote to Timothy. Even in that early church, there were those who already had a form of godliness but denying or in actuality there was no power thereof. There was no real life in their profession. Let me ask you tonight, is there power, is there life in your profession of faith? Is there, is there spiritual life? Is there a godly life in your profession of faith? There's a coldness, a deadness, and a worldliness among God's people. And the sad thing is we're so messed up we don't even care. Often the gospel message is not clearly preached and taught, and that is the fault of the pulpit. It has been so watered down and so warped The authority of the Bible is questioned, if not outright, but by practices. If we have to help God, if we need a program instead of God's plan and His pattern and, and the praying and calling on Him to, to enter in our midst and to save the lost, then we're in fact denying the power of God. There are frictions and factions. Christians not loving one another. We sang, I'm glad I'm a part of the family of God. Are you? Do you love one another? And said that the the Apostle John in his 90s, when he passed the church at Ephesus, he would come in when he was too elderly to preach, and he would touch each one on the shoulder or on the head as he came in, and he would say, my little children love one another. My little children love me. He would come into the, the, the assemblies and say, love one another. Love one another. How simple is that? How hard is that? How we need revival to sweep away sin and to remove the debris, the mountains of pride, the mountains of jealousy, the mountains of resentment, the mountains of complacency, the mountains of laziness. We see revival explained here. We see the need of revival declared. But thirdly, we see the secret of revival is revealed. And I I shudder to use a word like secret, but that sounds like some kind of Gnostic thing. If you just listen, I'll give you the secrets. But it's almost like the, the plan of God is obvious there, but we often overlook it. And so for lack of better words to describe it, I will say the secret of revival is revealed. Aren't you glad that God reveals to us what we need to know? We don't have to stay in the dark. It's not some mystical thing that only some people can have. This should be business as usual for the believer and for the church of Christ. Isaiah mentions some conditions which must be met if revival is to, to, to come. Are you interested? You should be. God is sovereign. He is in complete control. He can send or withhold revival. Do you agree with that, that, that statement? But we must do all we can to clear the way and make room for it. If we're praying for rain, and if we were living in a land where there was, no, there was no plumbing like we have, we would set out cisterns and pots. We would pray for rain, but we would make ready for it when we were in desperate need of it. Receptacles to gather the needed water. And God never visits the people who don't prepare themselves for his blessing. When we seek the Lord, we seek him. Almost, and I don't know how to say it. We, we seek you don't you don't go to uh, to go get something at the farmers market where they don't have bags. You take the, 
the bushel, the, the, the baskets to get the stuff. If somebody says, come to my house, I've got blueberries to give you, you prepare for it. We prepare for the blessing of God. Revival cannot be worked up. You can't sing it down. That's a singing. You can sing your lungs out and, and, and cry and feel warm and fuzzy and say that was a good singing or even preaching or whatever you can point to and it still not be revival. Isaiah 64 verse 1 makes that clear. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heaven, that, that thou would come down and the mountains might flow down. At that. These mountains of obstacles between us and the blessing of the Lord. These mountains of sin. Melt them, Lord. Can you melt a mountain? There must be an intense desire. And I would just say, first and foremost, the reason we don't see revival personally and corporately is we don't care. We don't want it. We hadn't even thought about it. We thought about the stock market. We thought about what we're going to wear and what our job situation is and if we get our vacation in and a whole host of things. But quite frankly, that the majority of God's people seemingly don't really desire what God desires to give. Look there in verse 1, just that first, those first two words. Oh, that. This is not just, well, you know, whatever. Oh, Isaiah's in pain. He's in, in desire, desperate strength. Oh, that you would sin. Oh, that you would open the heavens. We see a passion, a longing, a burden. used to sing a chorus, do you really want revival? Do you really want God's power? Do you really want His Spirit to control your life this hour? Quite frankly, most people want to control their own lives. Make their own decisions, their own choices. Thank you very much. There must be an intense desire and there must be confession of sin. There's no revival without removal of sin. While we can't forgive ourselves of sin, we can remove the sin from our lives. In fact, that's what we're told to do. Whoso confesseth and forsaketh sin shall have mercy. A putting away of sin. Shutting the door of provision. Make no provision for the flesh. Closing it down. Depriving it of the power. Mortifying it. You see those words all throughout the Scriptures. Cutting it off. Killing it. Anything that would hinder the blessing of the Lord. Anything that would grieve the Holy Spirit. And if you want to know what that is, he even lists it in detail in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Psalm 139, verse 23 should be our constant prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me. There should be a real desire. There should be confession of sin. And thirdly, there should be intercessory prayer. Isaiah 64 is one of those prayers. It's an intercessory prayer. It is definite, isn't it? If you get the picture here when you read this, it is urgent. We're not urgent about anything. But Isaiah is urgent that God would work on behalf of his people. The prayer isn't just simply, Lord, bless us. Lord, bless us. You see the urgency. Oh, that thou wouldst rend, rip open the heavens and come down. 
would that be like? What if we would earnestly, continually intercede until God sent revival to us personally, individually, and to others? Fourthly, there must be an exercise of faith. God always blesses a faith in action. While we cannot work for anything, there's always feet to our prayers. There's always something for us to do in obedience to the request that we're asking. We must believe that revival is possible. They that come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The Bible pictures that God longs to revive His people. He longs to be held in high esteem to His people. He longs to visit us. He longs to to bless us. Isaiah's prayer has been recorded for us. He even gives us the words to, to pray. Not that we should just rotely pray it, but ask this to become a part of our own personal experience. He believes that God can come down or he wouldn't ask him, would he? He has seen the Lord at work in his own personal life in chapter 1. And so he's asking the Lord to do that for the, the nation at, at, at large. That the mountains of sin would be removed. The mountains of resentment. The mountains of worldliness. That repentance and restoration and salvation would flow like a, the lava out of a volcano. Rent open and flowing down that lava. Consuming all in its way. Listen to the words of our Lord in Mark chapter 11 in regards to mountains. Jesus said, have faith in God. Simple, isn't it? Have faith in God. For I say unto you, verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you that whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Have you asked the Lord for revival and believe that he can send it and remove the mountains that are hindering And when you stand praying, oh, he always throws a monkey wrench in there. Oh, that's so great. I can just pray and say, mountain be removed. It'll be removed. That, I like that. That's what I'll do that. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, when you stand praying, mountain be removed and cast in the sea, forgive. Seriously? That too? Forgive if you have all against any. That's where he gets into the inner workings of our hearts. Lord, send revival to me. Bless me. Make me right with you. Lord, I want to be on cloud nine. And, and then we look out of the corner of our eye. And there's sister so-and-so. Haven't spoke to in weeks. Brother so-and-so, we, we go on the other side of the sidewalk when we see him coming. When you're praying that this mountain be removed and that God would visit you in revival... Forgive. See how simple that is? Forgive. Let them go. Let it go. Release them from the debt that they owe you. If you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. See, this is the mechanics 
of what he's talking about in Isaiah. But if you do not forgive, guess what? No revival. No blessing. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. This is not talking about judicial standing before the Lord. This is talking about those who know Him and walk with Him and are His children. Matthew Henry closes that chapter in his notes with this. Those that would take hold of God in prayer so as to prevail with Him must stir up themselves to do it. All that is within us must be employed in the duty, our thoughts fixed, our affections flaming. All that is within must be engaged and summoned into the service. We must stir up the gift that is within us by an actual consideration of the importance of the work that is before us and a close application of the mind to it. But how can we expect that God would come to us in ways of mercy when there are none that do this? When those that profess to be intercessors are mere triflers. Just triflers. There was a lady who used to keep me when I was a little boy, a very precious, precious lady. She was just one of those rare people, and she had ways of saying things. And trifling was one of her words. If she didn't feel well, or if she felt tired, she said, I just feel trifling. As a little boy, I didn't know what that word meant. But I began to see it in in a picture, and she'd say, Chris, quit being so trifling. Just go through the motions, just... Busying yourself with nothing. We talk about these things. We preach about these things. We have prayer meetings. And the great danger is that we leave this place. And it's all been just a trifle. What we do on Wednesday night. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens. Thou wouldst come down that the mountains might flow down in thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil. We talk about the hot, boiling fervor for the Lord. To make thy name known to thy adversary. Isn't that what we're here? Lord, to make his name known to his adversaries. That the nations may tremble in thy presence. Would you close your eyes and let's bow for prayer. Thank you for worshiping with us here at Glen Iris Baptist Church. We trust that you received a blessing from our worship service. If we can ever assist you in your spiritual life, we would count it an honor. You may write to us at 1137 10th Place South, Birmingham, Alabama, 35205 or call us at 205-323-1516 you may also email us at gibc at net. our Christian radio station can also be heard over the internet at www.glenirisbaptist.org 
May our Lord bless you and guide you day by day.